Turn, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Our theme for this year, 2020, is redeeming the time in 2020. And we started out um, with our theme verse for the year, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, back in January. Each month, we have had a parallel passage of Scripture mentioned in our bulletin that we've emphasized to go along with that theme, just as a reminder for us through the year. And what we have done is each month, we have spoken on that first Sunday of the month on each one of those parallel verses. And this is where we've come thus far. In February, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, a time to work. In March, Romans 13, 11, a time to wake. In June, Colossians 4, 5, a time to walk. July, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, a time to warn. In August, Psalm 90, verse 12, a time to be wise. In September, we looked at John chapter 5, verse 4, a time to witness. And then last month, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, a time to weigh. This morning, we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, involving a time to watch. And by the way, next month, December, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, a time to worship. But for this morning, let's look at our text, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll read verses 6, 7, and 8. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. For this passage, and by the way, I can say there are so many things that we can cover. This, this whole passage is so rich and involves so many aspects of the, uh, those end days of the Apostle Paul. So we're going to just do our best to stick to the specific topic this morning. As Paul is writing here, what had overshadowed the entire epistle is now stated explicitly. Paul was about to die. But what we note here, he's not afraid of death. In fact, he looked forward to this great event. But why? Because it meant he would soon be with the Lord. To the Philippians he wrote, For, me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. No passage in the New Testament is more full of vivid pictures than this one. In illustrating his impending death, Paul speaks of two matters which both demonstrate his triumphant victory and should be of great encouragement to the believer. Those two things we consider this morning are his readiness for death and his reward in death. Notice with me as we start out here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, the first of these, Paul's readiness for death. He says, for I am now ready to be offered. And what we're going to do this morning is consider and concentrate on some of the imagery that Paul uses in this passage. So that picture here, that imagery of being ready to be offered is that of the drink offering, which was first presented in Genesis, 
when Jacob poured out a drink offering before the Lord as a sacrifice. That's seen in Genesis chapter 35 at verse 14. The scripture says, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil therein. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake unto him Bethel, or the house of God. So we see Jacob kind of setting the tone for scripture in pouring out this drink offering, in giving this offering to the Lord. In the Mosaic Law, we see in Exodus and in Leviticus, drink offerings were a part of the sacrificial ceremony that people engaged in when they were bringing offerings to the Lord. Paul was acknowledging he was already being poured out. His head was not yet on the executioner's block, but his heart was. Paul had already made up his mind. His days had come to an end. He was ready now to make that ultimate sacrifice for the Lord. And when you consider the imagery here and how it is seen throughout the scripture, consider, if you would, Abraham for a minute, thinking back to the days when God told Abraham he wanted him to offer his son Isaac. Think about how heart-wrenching that must have been. Abraham because he was a just and righteous man, was determined to do so. God told them where to go, so they journeyed. Does anybody know how long that journey was? The picture here is amazing. It's three days. For three days, Abraham and his son and his servants made their way to the place, to the mount that God would show them, which would later become the, the temple mount at Jerusalem, but to, to the place where God would show them. And Imagine in Abraham's mind, he was the only one in that group who knew what was happening. He was the only one who knew what was going on. In his mind and heart, his son was already dead. How difficult that must have been. And yet the joy when God intervened and provided himself a ram for the offering. But in Abraham's mind, his son was already dead. This is the imagery we see with the Apostle Paul. In his mind, he's dead. He's he's now ready to be offered. He's now ready for his life to be poured out. It has already been poured out in service to the Lord. And now, his life is going to be poured out in sacrifice. But he wasn't filled with sorrow. You know, it's an amazing thing. The world... And Christianity has a totally different concept or view of the subject of death. So many people today, they think death as, an, as the ultimate tragedy. They think it as the, as the end all of everything. Many people are taught they go through this life and then at the end of this life they die. And then there's nothing else. They're taught in annihilation or they're taught in an afterlife where they are going to be reincarnated as something else. There are a lot of different ideas and philosophies out there. But you understand, for us as believers, death is nothing more than a footstep. It's passing from one place to another, from one life to another. We leave this world and enter into glory. And Paul was excited about that. He was thrilled. He was looking forward to it. That's why he wasn't filled with sorrow and grief and pain. Now we understand when we lose a loved one through death, whether it's accident or illness or whatever, it is hard. 
There's great pain associated with it. But Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, excuse me, to the Thessalonians, explained this concept of passing from this life to the next. And he wrote saying, comfort one another with these words. The encouragement today, the imagery here, as Paul came to the point in his life where it was time to watch. It was time to wait for the Lord to call him home. And he did so with gladness of heart. Well, that's thrilling when you think about it. So this, this imagery here that we start with, with Paul, indicating that his life is now an offering that's going to be poured out to the Lord. And by the way, no offering given to the Lord is a waste. You think about Christ on Calvary's tree. What a horrific event, humanly speaking. But what a wondrous event, biblically speaking. For God made a way for mankind to be reconciled to the Lord. And that, of course, is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter Marshall, one-time chaplain of the U.S. Senate, said, The message of a life is not in its duration, but in its donation. Paul's gift to the world and to the church is immeasurable but yet only pales in comparison to the gift that God gave us through his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. William Barclay, in writing of this passage, stated, Paul did not think of himself as going to be executed. He thought of himself as going to offer his life to God. His life was not being taken from him. He was laying it down. Ever since his conversion, Paul had offered to God his money, his scholarship, his strength, his time, the vigor of his body, the acuteness of his mind, and the devotion of his passionate heart. Only life itself was left to offer, and Paul was gladly willing to lay it down. Jim Elliot one of the five men who perished at the hand of the Aka Indians in Central America, before going said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul recognized the value of this offering he was about to pour out to the Lord. The imagery continues in this thought. The second point here is Paul's reward in death. 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am now ready to be offered... And the time of my departure is at hand. Paul's final instructions to Timothy provides God's saints with the comfort and assurance of knowing we can and should be ready for heaven. Beloved, sad is the saint of God who is not ready for heaven. We ought to be ready for the Lord may call us home at any moment, any hour. Any day. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. How many people got up this morning and entered into the day not realizing it would be their last? For the Christian, one day God's going to call us home. Well, the word departure here 
Paul says, the time of my departure is hand. The word departure means loose in order to depart. Or it means death. It's the same word found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul said, I'm, I'm torn between two desires. I want to go and be with the Lord. That would be far better. But to stay here and serve with you, that is also of great importance. So that was Paul's attitude. He's going to serve the Lord as long as God left him here. But when it came time to go home to glory, he was going to gladly head on that journey. Well, there are five images here in regard to that word depart or departure. You see, the word departure was used in a number of ways. In fact, there are many more than just five, but we're going to look at five this morning. But the word departure was used in a number of ways, in a number of different settings, and everybody understood what those words meant. We start off noticing that imagery, a farmer unyoking his oxen. See, the word departure was the picture of a farmer coming to the end of the workday, leading his oxen back to the barn or back to the corral or wherever, unyoking their oxen, and the toil of the day was coming to an end. It was time for blessed rest, following that labor, that work. And you know, for many of us as Christians, we recognize, we labor, we serve the Lord. We do his bidding, and we don't do so grudgingly, but we do so gladly. I beseech you, their brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Is it not reasonable for God to expect his saints to serve him, to do his bidding? He doesn't make us do it. He doesn't force us. No, he, he wants saints who will gladly do his bidding because we love him. Paul did exactly that. He considered himself a servant of the Lord, a bond slave of Christ. And he willingly served God. Labor. Labor has been a part of man's culture since creation. And six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, the scripture tells us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Psalm 104, verse 23. Man goeth forth unto his work and to his laboring, until the evening. It is contrary to God's plan for mankind for people to be lazy and to not work and to sponge off others. But what's interesting is this concept of work carries over into the spiritual realm also. For Proverbs chapter 10 verse 16 tells us the labor of the righteous tendeth to life. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. I believe the Lord would expect us. He desires we serve Him. And in serving Him, we long for the day when that labor, that toil, will come to an end. You know, you picture someone who's worked 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and in some cases even longer for a particular company or organization. 
And they come to a point in their life when they're ready to retire. You know, like the old cowboy hanging up the spurs. I'm going to go ahead and just rest. Well, for a believer, we serve throughout our life. And our time of rest comes when? When the Lord calls us home. What a joy to know that we have that opportunity awaiting us where we will rest in the Lord and will labor no more. Another aspect of this particular word, depart, uh, that I'm now ready to be offered, offered in the time of my departure is is at hand. It was used to picture the breaking up of an encampment. It was a a term used by soldiers. You can imagine when uh, soldiers are away from home, they're away from their country, and they're off and they're out on some sort of military campaign. And if you've ever seen pictures of a... uh, an encampment uh, where military uh, personnel are, are, uh, have all their tents set up in a particular area, a bivouac or something, and you see just rows and rows and rows of tents. Well, that tent re- provides for them a temporary shelter. It's not permanent. It's where they're staying while they're away from home, while they're engaged in battle. Beloved, the joy is knowing that battle is going to one day come to an end. The campaign will cease. The war will be over. And they'll be able to break camp. They'll be able to untie that tent from the pegs holding it to the ground. They'll be able to pack that thing up. And they'll be able to head on home. Anyone who has served in the military, and it doesn't matter if it's U.S. or any nation at all, truly there's nothing pleasant about the battlefield. There are those who seek to glorify it and to make it look wonderful, tremendous, attractive, appealing. But there's nothing pleasant about the actual battle. A general of years past said, war is hell. We know, of course, biblically that's not altogether true, but it's very close to it. Very difficult. And anybody who's had to be engaged in battle, they look forward to the day when they can lay their arms down and they can once again enter into a life of peace. Beloved, for us as Christians, the Bible in many ways depicts the Christian life as those engaged in warfare. The Bible tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. He tells us to put on that spiritual armor, having on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, having our loins girt about with truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, having the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. And all throughout our Christian life, we are engaged in a battle with the wicked one. We're thankful that Satan has already been defeated. The Bible tells us we are more than conquerors through Christ. We already have the victory. However, we are still engaged in this battle. The battle between good and evil. Between righteousness and unrighteousness. The battle for the souls of lost mankind. Beloved, we are engaged in a battle and in warfare here. For the souls of of men, women, and children. But there's coming a day 
when that battle is going to be over. Now, we're grateful God has saved us and he's delivered us from the penalty of sin. That's past tense. Present tense, as we serve the Lord, as we grow and mature, we talk about sanctification, we are being delivered from the power of sin as we walk closer to the Lord. But aren't you glad one day in the future we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin? Never again to see the ugliness of Satan's effort carried on around us. Never again to ourselves think, say, or do anything that's going to bring disgrace and shame upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day we're going to leave this battlefield of the world behind and we're going to be home with the Lord. What a joy it is. You know, there are numerous hymns in our, in our songbook that depict the life of Christian warfare. Sound the battle cry. Onward, Christian soldiers. The battle's over and so on. What a joy to know. Year of God, little children. And have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The way this, this word was used was to depict the joy of soldiers when they would break camp at the end of a battle or a campaign. Another way this word was used was used by sailors. Can't leave the sailors out. It was used by sailors who unmoored their ship. They would loosen the ropes that were holding their ship at anchor at a dock or a port. And it indicated their wandering was over. No longer were they going to be strangers in a foreign land. No longer would they walk among those whom they knew not. It's the idea of as the ship hoists its anchor, as it unmoors the lines, as it sets sails and heads home. It's departing from one country and going to another. You see, Paul had anchored in this world for many years in service for the Lord. But he was, he was excited because it meant he was going to one day, leave, soon he was going to leave this world behind and head to a new port and weigh anchor in a new land, that of heaven. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world Paul wrote to the Ephesians saying, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's one reason Paul was so grateful for his coming death, for that soon ending of this life, because it meant he would journey on to a new land and be at home with the Lord. You know, for us as Christians, we need to be reminded this world, this place in which we live, it's the temporary abode of believers. God's going to let us head on out one day, and we will be with the Lord. Back when I was in the Navy, we um, went over to the Mediterranean a couple of cruises, and one of the most exciting parts of that trip, the most exciting part was getting into port in Norfolk, Virginia, but the second most exciting part of that trip was heading out of the Mediterranean and seeing the rock of Gibraltar on the right side of the ship. Ah, off the starboard bow, there's the big rock. It means we're leaving the med. It means we're heading across the Atlantic and we'll soon be home. Paul, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he uh, was there in a jail cell in a, in a situation where he could look out from his prison. We're speculating now, but maybe he could see the executioners stand. And as he looked out, 
and saw the place where he would, in just a short while, be led to. He was reminded, I see that sight. It means I'll soon be home. You know, what a joy. What a joy to think. This world is not our permanent home. Aren't you glad of that? What a thrill. Another way this word was used, it was used by philosophers to unravel a mystery. The word depart, it's a picture of a philosopher, a mathematician, an astronomer, or some other scientist trying to solve one of life's riddles. After spending hours, days, weeks, and in some cases even years searching for an answer, (laughs) aha, eureka, they finally have the answer to their question. They finally have the solution to that puzzle. Have you ever worked on a puzzle for a long time that's just driving you nuts? Maybe you had one of those puzzles that had 2,000 or 5,000 things, and it just seems like it took forever to get to the end of that. A philosopher, a scientist, doing his or her best to solve that problem and finally getting to it and say, I've got it. Well, the scripture talks about many mysteries. And for us as believers, departing from this life means we are no longer under the cloud of the mysteries of life. No longer uncertain as to what's ahead. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For we now see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. We can talk about what we think heaven is going to be like. But can you imagine when all doubt, all uncertainty, all questions are passed and we walk past those states of pearl and we tread upon the streets of gold and we get to see our Savior face to face. We'll know what he looks like. We'll bask in the warmth of his expression and his love. No more uncertainty. People can mock us and say, well, there's nothing true about it. Oh, it's true. We know that. We just haven't personally experienced it yet. But one day that mystery is going to be over and the uncertainty will be clear. I'm almost done here. The last, the fifth thought that we consider here, that word depart. It's a picture of a prisoner being freed from captivity. The latest statistics I could find, did you realize that back in 2018, around 6.4 million Americans were either on probation, parole, or incarcerated? 6.4 million. These are men and women, and in many cases, juveniles, who were imprisoned as a means of punishment for crimes that they had committed. I believe you'd be hard-pressed in communicating with any of that 6.4 million of finding someone who didn't want to be released from whatever form of imprisonment and oversight they were under. It's just something about human nature. We don't like to be confined. If you've ever been to a jail or a prison, You know, it can be a pretty intimidating place. It can be a fearful place. It can be a lonely place. 
And there's just something about that the old flesh doesn't like. Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. Just like a prisoner who is freed, who is released from the bonds of his imprisonment, Paul said, I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be freed from this prison of clay. Wow, think about that. The Bible illustrates the body in which we live in many ways, but he calls it a tabernacle, calls it a body of clay. It's a prison of flesh, if you will. You see, mankind is made up of three different parts. We believe in the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit. The soul and spirit of mankind will live somewhere forever. Those who have repented of their sin and received Christ as Savior, they spend eternity in glory with the Lord. Those who reject Him spend eternity separated from God. That's the tragedy of that aspect. The body, the body is just temporary. It's a shell, a place where we, our body and our spirit, dwell. Paul used this image to indicate our body is a prison. And one day we're going to be released. One day as death comes, we'll have the opportunity to be freed. This mortal shall put on immortality. And we will with others declare, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Wow, what a thrill that is. So the imagery here we see is the the drink offering. Paul has poured out his life in service to the Lord and now is prepared to pour out his life in sacrifice to the Lord. And then the imagery as well of these five different ways in which this word was used. For a farmer, his work was over. For a soldier, his warfare was over. For a sailor, his wayfaring was over. For a philosopher, his wonder was over. And for a prisoner, his woe is over. Yes, for the Christian, death is laying down the burden in order to rest. It's the laying aside of the shackles in order to be free. It's striking the camp in order to take residence in a heavenly place. It's casting off the ropes which bind us to this world in order to set sail on a voyage which ends in the presence of God. Who then shall fear death? Not the one whose heart has trusted in the Lord. Many phrases have been coined by literary geniuses through the years to try and temper or soften the harshness of death. For example, Walt Whitman, American poet and humanist, called it a cool, enfolding death. Robert Ingersoll, who was known as the great agnostic, referred to it as the fine serenity of death. And William Shakespeare, England's national poet, also called the Bard of Avon, referred to it as a necessary end. How different for the believer. For Paul would say, to die is gain. Victory awaits. Death to the child of God means something different than that of the world. You know, ancient Christians 
gathered round their departed loved ones in the catacombs and sang, Good night, beloved, sleep and take your rest. Lay down your head upon the Savior's breast. You see, death ought not to be feared by those of us who know the Lord. Why? Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. I'll close with this poem, another thought here. But Someone has written, Why should I be afraid? It is not death to die. Tis but a step to glory and a mansion in the sky. How can I be afraid? The Lord is with me still and loves me as he did that day. He died upon the hill. Afraid of what? No night so dark, it can his glory dim. Afraid? Oh no. Though Jordan roar, I cross dry shod with him. On this tombstone in London, England, are these words. Beneath these clouds and beneath these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. This is not Pease, it's only his pod. Pease has shelled out and gone home to God. That's a good reminder for us as Christians. For those who know not the Lord, oh, they need to heed the admonition of God through the prophet Amos when he declared, prepare to meet thy God. Paul, a time to watch, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Oh, Blessed day when the Lord calls us home through the rapture or through the grave, not to be feared, but to be longed for and to look forward to as a commencement day, graduation day from this life to the next.